0: Fun Ideas Productions presents The Fun Ideas Podcast Hi, this is Mark Arnold and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 14 Just another reminder with the holidays coming up order my books today from Amazon or Bear Manor Media Today's guest has written over 30 books about the history of radio and television including books on such classic radio shows as Suspense Duffy's Tavern and The Shadow as well as books on such classic TV series such as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Car 54, Where Are You?, and The Time Tunnel. Here he is, Martin Grams. Okay, on the line I have Martin Grams. How are you today?
1: Oh, good. Pleasure to be on the show.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Well, um, I know a little bit about yourself because I met you a few times, like at SpurredVac and things like that. But, you know, just start off and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in old-time radio and various TV series and becoming a writer and things like that.
1: Uh, Well, I guess the only way I got involved was through exposure. They always say, why is it that young kids are not into old-time radio and old TV shows? And I always say, exposure. And with the Internet today, you'd think that would be a lot easier. think it did in a sense i see a lot of younger people but it's almost like their world is delved just on the internet so <laughs> there's other interests there's much more competition on the pro and the con side um but i got exposed to it back when i don't know i was just too young and i enjoyed them and somewhere along the line uh, a report i wrote for high school ended up exp- being expanded into a book because i realized there needed to be a book it was too young nobody wanted to publish it you know it was a pat on the the head here's a catalog and a cookie have a nice day kid (laughs) and so my father said you know your grandfather left you all money when you were born and I bet you it's quite a lot now why don't you use that print the book you know all the fan clubs you know all the newsletters this was of course right before the internet really started kicking in and he said why don't you uh, just pay for the ads and get a book printed that's what the publishers are going to do and it was the best advice my father ever gave me because I think I sold a I had 1,000 copies
0: printed, and I sold them in less than six months. And which book book was this one? What was the subject matter? It was a book
1: on suspense, which was a radio and TV show. And I did not know at the time. Now looking back, I do. I'm more wiser. Um, Before that, most people did what's referred to as broadcast logs versus episode guides. A log would be simply like a log, title, date guest star maybe an episode number and that's about it whereas I expanded what I did was more like a 500 page book instead of a 40 page spiral bound list <laughs> you know, interviews with cast and crew, you know, the immaculate details, origins of bloopers, that kind of thing. And it just kind of led to what's your next book? And that led to another book and that led to another book. And it eventually became, went from a hobby to a living because I'm probably one of the few that can actually sit here and work on books and make a living off it, just writing and researching. And now it's pretty much what I guess most people do as the I don't know, Amazon's now the 400-pound gorilla, so they now own the print-on-demands, they now make the terms, 99% of books sell on Amazon, so you can't really make a living per se, but, you know, the sales numbers are up there, but just not the profits, so now it's generated back down to what it was prior, which was a hobby, yeah. so I track down family relatives, go through archives, I find <laughs> stuff, and I publish my findings, It's pretty much what it is now.
0: Yeah, I think when you were doing your first books, I was just doing a fanzine, which actually used to do really well for me at that time, but I didn't even think about uh, publishing my own book at that time, <laughs> so it's like you got a, a big jump start on it you know, compared to me, but uh, uh, so let's see, now I, I, you mentioned your dad, and I just did a little like reference that said he was a magician, or is he's still around, right?
1: Oh, yes. He was a magician. I don't think it gets out of your blood, but he's kind of retired in a sense. Okay. So I just, you know, once in a while I come across something that might be of interest. Yeah. Um, A few weeks ago, right before Spurredvac, when you and I were chatting, uh, we came across almost all 58 of the radio scripts that came out of Chicago that was for Thurston the Magician. Uh-huh. It was done in 1932 into 33. and uh, it was kind of unique, so I grabbed a book that was recently published about him. Mm-hmm. Did not know, for example, his daughter was Jane, and there's a character, a recurring character on the radio show named Jane. He plays his daughter. and I thought, oh, they're borrowing some of the true to life for characters for the radio show who would have known mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like we just do a magazine article for Spurvax Radiogram. will document the known plots, it's not all the scripts but it's most of them, as well as a little trivia and detail that we dug up about the show why it only ran six months etc etc so basically beyond the one paragraph summary in encyclopedias and what people seem to cut and paste and put on Wikipedia where half that information turned out to be wrong anyway (laughs) um, we now have a Magazine article coming out, so I'm still kind of digging through the archives and putting together some info that people didn't know. That hopefully will help document preserve more of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, no, I
1: guess you know
0: what my question was, you know, about your dad and everything. Uh, you obviously do have some interest in magic, but why didn't you take that direction, or instead of doing writing in the old time radio in your life?
1: Oh, I had a more pessimistic view of the <laughs> magic as a hobby and a business. You know, you, you see, David Copperfield had TV specials when I'm a kid, and I and we're over at my dad's friend's house watching. It's like a gathering, and instead of celebrating and having a and like an excuse where everyone shares a common interest and yay, look at this, yada yada, and it'll inspire young kids to be magicians. All I heard was magicians complaining about it. Oh no, no, we we know better, yada. And I realized there's professional jealousy.
2: yeah.
1: And it was funny because someone asked me that question you asked a few months ago, and he's a magician. And he says, you never thought about taking up uh, your dad's mantle and just become a magician?
2: Yeah. And
1: I said, uh, I see more professional jealousy rather than praise for a hobby that that's dwindling. And it's basically, I'd say, by fault of the magicians themselves. And he looked at me and he said, You are absolutely correct. (laughs) Coming from another magician, I observed it early on enough and didn't waste a big chunk of my life making card tricks and throwing cards across a room.
0: Right. I kind of sensed that, but I was just kind of curious, because I I didn't know that fact until I was kind of reading your uh, biography, so I was like, hmm, you know, that's an interesting thing. You know, it's like, um, but I assume your dad was also interested in old-time radio. I mean, my dad was, you know, not enough to maybe write a book, but you know listen to shows and things like that when he could
1: no actually not really um i'm certain he's heard them when they were reruns on local channels in the 70s when there was that nostalgia boom Mm. you know charles michelson syndicated them but he was never really into old radio programs um he just more I guess into magic and okay. whatever pop culture at the time like Miami Vice and Knight Rider and whatever was oh, on okay. TV at the time uh, I guess I was more into the older programs and just enjoyed listening to them but I learned over the years and maybe early on I find that the history behind the programs Is equally if not more fascinating Than listening to the recordings themselves So it's ironic that even over the years As I listen to less shows Although I get hooked on a few Becoming guilty pleasures every few years Is another show I get hooked on um, I find I listen to less But I research more And I'm just (laughs) fascinated with how the whole industry And the hobby and so on worked
0: So it's more of the process and all the -the behind-the-scenes details that interest you then
1: oh yes uh, I remember Saturday morning at the Spurred Vac they did a slideshow presentation on truth or consequences and I sat there and my first statement was look you can listen to the shows and you'll hear parlor games stunts on the program people getting sprayed in the w- face with seltzer bottles and it's cute amusings." I says but in the next uh, four or five minutes uh, just to open up I said you're going to see some things and you're going to realize this was more than a quiz show and the first picture I had was a woman who was behind a wall with a hole and there's a tiger tail and she had seen earlier her husband wearing the tiger costume, which you see on the other side of the wall, yeah. but he's not wearing the costume now. There was a real tiger oh, and a trainer there holding the face that she used to hold to give a good yank on that tiger's tail, not Ooh. realizing she's pulling a real tiger. The audience was immersed. They were absolutely, you could hear chuckles and uh, and gasp <laughs> and all, and, and I realized I, I'm sitting back thinking, see, if they listen to a show for 30 minutes, they think it's kind of cute. They see the pictures and the history and all of a sudden they're glued. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, this is this is what's the fun part of the hobby.
0: Right. So, But how, you must have started off just listening to shows before you did all the research and stuff. But I know because, uh, for myself, I'm a few years older than you, but I mean you know in the 70s and 80s there really wasn't any new radio shows and the only way you could get them is maybe on a cassette tape or a record album or something like that is that how you started out Uh, because i mean my dad would talk about things oh there's this show and that show and that other show that used to air but all that stuff went away in favor of television so how did you kind of get into it in these pre-internet youtube days and stuff like that
1: Oh, yeah, that's pretty much how I got hooked on it. Um, there was audio cassettes at Christmas for The Shadow and Jack Benny, mm-hmm. and it's amusing that it wasn't until the third or fourth episode that I realized The Shadow was invisible. The way <laughs> I listened to him, I kept thinking he was hiding behind the barrels as a guy's shooting and can't <laughs> find him in the in the submarine and so on. <laughs> and uh, it was just one of those things, I guess, the more you listen to, the more you get fascinated. So, uh, right. yeah, audio cassettes got me hooked, and from there, just more shows and more shows and then Contacts and then, oh, yeah, there's a convention for old radio programs. (laughs) No. And you go in there, and there's tens of thousands of cassettes, and CDs are coming into the market. (laughs) And I was like a kid in a candy store, and the only flaw is I had not enough money to buy the entire hotel out. Oh, yeah. But the fact I was young, what I liked about them, and this might be the difference on the, the magician end we just talked about, um, I was a young kid, and there were people like Ted Davenport and Terry Salmson, uh, who had one or two of them. I think Terry introduced me to Jay Hickerson. Hickerson ran the show, so that's why I went up there. My dad drops me off. He's off with his magician friend who lives 20 minutes from the hotel. He says, I'll see you in the later in the day. Go enjoy yourself. <laughs> and I'm wandering around, and there's one guy who's literally oh you're doing a book on suspense and he's whipping out a business card and giving me 30 bucks for the book and says hold on to this when the book's available mail it to me here i am a 18 19 year old who says he's doing a book who's never been known in the hobby at all in any way shape or form and they're practically giving a stranger a young kid 30 bucks on a business card wow and another vendor he's sitting there putting up some audio cds and cassettes into a bag after i purchased four or five and he just picks up a huge handful and goes these are some of my favorite shows you'll like these take these home too and it was like they were trying to get the youngsters involved and that was the night and day versus the magic magician and from where i Mm. came from in case any magicians say i am mean (laughs) mean but that's where i realized wow and i actually carried on that tradition too so when i see youngsters like at a you know, I go to a flea market and I set up you know, two or three times a year and it's collectors and as a young kid he may be 10, 11, 12 and he's buying big little books and they're the beat up copies are so getting them for five bucks I'm, I'm just literally handing him a couple others and his dad thinks it's wasting time and mm. I look at his dad and says dude what you're seeing here is nothing compared to where I went from where i came from for what i did what people did for me trust me the kid wants to listen to him and read these things let him and i'm giving the kid a few extras and go home with these you'll enjoy them start your collection yeah and at least even if the kid doesn't end up growing up being in a a dealer in big little books or something at the very least he knows what they are he's into them and that keeps Mm. it going
0: yeah And it's the best drug you can ever have. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what parents always worry about. Oh, my kid might get into drugs. It's like, hey, you know, there's no consequences of listening to old radio shows except time consumption. But, I mean, hey, video games do that too. Anything else? You know, so it's like, you know... Why not know your own history of the world and stuff like that? That's how I see well, it. Well, that's at least
1: that's at least a drug that he won't be a statistic outside the sheriff's office, right. the, along the sign on the road saying how many died of opioid abuse and all that <laughs> nonsense. So right. That's a good thing.
0: Yeah. And um, going back to what you just said uh, about suspense, it was kind of interesting. I thought the same thing because my first exposure to the shadow. Oh, excuse me. I'm thinking shadow now. Sorry. Uh, jumping around. No. Uh, skip that. <laughs> Or did, did you say The Shadow? I'm sorry. Yeah, I said The Shadow. Oh, okay. I was think We're jumping around already. Uh, the Shadow, yeah. They originally, I thought it was a visible character, too, because my first exposure was the DC comic book, and then they did a parody of it in Mad Comic Books way back when, and so they always showed him as a little figure with a black cap and coat and things like that, so I figured... He doesn't go invisible, but it was like you. I realized, oh, he does. He does go completely invisible. But, uh, you know, that's the interesting thing about that, that we kind of came to that same conclusion originally, you know, that, oh, he must be visible. But anyway, (laughs) just as an aside. Um, So you've done a lot of different books. I'm kind of going down the list. I jotted down certain titles um, that you've done. Uh, did you try to write books only about your favorite shows, or were there ones that you just said, this needs a book, or a combination, what was your what was what? Caused you to go to a particular, like, you don't have a Jack Benny showbook, let's say that, the obvious, you know. Um, yeah,
1: and, and to be honest, I did a poll once and yeah. I actually asked hundreds of people without, it basically a fill in the gap. wasn't even a, a drop down menu or a multiple choice option. I said, uh, what's your favorite show, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Jack Benny was not only number one, um, the closest number two was way lower. I mean, Jack Benny was that high up. Yeah. And number two was the Lux Radio Theater, which surprised me. Because I'm not into Lux Radio Theater, never would have thought that. Uh-huh. But we're talking like if Jack Benny had three thousand votes, Lux Radio Theater had a thousand, and then everything else went below that nine hundred, ninety, nine eighty, mm-hmm. nine sixty. There are certain programs, but Benny is huge. And if I was going to write books on to make money, I would do Benny.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I chose books that needed to be done. They were franchises, or I went through archives and found materials and realized this needs to get published. There's a saying I've always had. Most people will agree that it needs to be done, but very few people spearhead to actually do it.
2: Yeah. So
1: you either <laughs> okay. have a spearheader who who actually makes it happen and finds volunteers or, you know, you just do it. And so I just basically work on one project after another, get the books published. People have an option to buy it or not, but at least the more but get purchased and the more that circulate, the more it's preserved. And so that's really the decision. deciding factor is whether it needs to. Right. Um, yeah, because some of the subjects I know that some have been written about, but they were poorly written or poorly researched, or mm-hmm. they really needed to be detailed from what I had come across.
2: Okay. And then
1: others, others, it was, okay, no one's really done anything, and it should. It's one of those important programs that need to be done. Mm-hmm. I, I always figure it fills in the gap. And if I can't restore the recordings to preserve them sound-wise, at least the paper documents should.
2: Right, okay.
0: Um, So it sounds similar to how I approach books. I try to write a book about a subject that uh, nobody has really written a book about, rather than another book about the same subject, that there's already ten books and probably five of them are excellent, and I don't really have anything to add to the conversation. So... um,
2: yeah,
1: I'm finishing one. I'm working on. I hope hoping, hoping to have it done this winter. It's on the Lone Ranger. Okay. And it's, t- it's title subtitle is the early years, comma 1933 to 1937. Mm-hmm. And it's mainly because those first five years were not recorded. Oh. They never started recording the episodes until thirty eight January 38 for business purposes. Hmm. And as a re- as a result, most of the first five years is where most of the gaps, the unknown factors invo- involved. Um, And I've seen that all the books that have been written and documented And people have gone through some archives and stuff I wouldn't say they're inaccurate But most of them are fairly accurate They're just not as comprehensive But Mm -hmm. you could get three or four particular books on the Lone Ranger And from 38 up to the TV series It's documented decently well, and Mm -hmm. I thought The Missing Gap is the first. So people are saying, you know, are you going to do all four books? I know you were planning to do four volumes of The Lone Ranger. And I said, well, how about we get the first one done? And if I don't do the others because of time, at the very least, the first one's really the one that needs to be done anyway. And that's the one I'm really hoping... We'll fill in all the gaps that everyone needs to know and probably get pushed to do the others later. But
0: yeah. it, Now, who was playing the Lone Ranger? Was it Brace Beamer at that time or somebody else? I don't even know.
1: And it was Earl Grazer. Beamer oh. came in in 41 oh, okay. after uh, okay. Grazer died.
0: Okay, so I, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not too knowledgeable about it, but maybe I'm going by the earliest one that the recordings exist. Is that
2: correct?
1: Yeah, the early ones that exist are Grazer until oh, April okay. 41. Okay. There's actually a. Uh, the story is he got beheaded but I don't think he did. The actor was just driving to work to the station then he was in an auto accident and died and the end result was uh, they had to find someone to fill it in and Stryker said, I can't write a script that fast, but hey we had an episode where he had to go on vacation and he was wounded and the Lone Ranger was whispering his lines and we had some other actor play it so kids wouldn't recognize him and we thought, let's do that, so they revised that same premise from years prior and so for a few episodes the Lone Ranger was wounded in April 41 that's the transition and then when he's all nursed back to health there's Beamer's voice and they hope the kids wouldn't notice too much, although ironically he was also the narrator for the show before that, so they may have recognized it's the same guy who's narrating
0: sounds like a like what happened with howdy doody of all things you know it's like (laughs) but i guess that's a common thing i mean they they change doctor who all the time for example so you know if you if you do it creatively people accept it typically i would say or you or you could just throw it at people like the darrens on bewitched and okay this guy's playing it now (laughs) anyway um so, what type of radio shows do you tend to like most? It looks like, before you answer, you know, it's kind of more like the suspense, kind of mystery, kind of detective types. So am I correct in that assumption, or no?
1: Yeah, yeah, I like detectives are not my forte. I find them all to be a variation on a theme. Um, it's basically no different than the other one. In fact, they usually had the same script writers writing for four or five detective shows. So all they had to remember is this one sings, this one smokes a sponsor cigarette, <laughs> this one's got wounded with one arm, and this guy steals wallets out of dead man dead men he finds, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer drama. I like good okay. drama and good subjects. Uh, I've researched stuff for radio comedies, but I never published any. I don't know if they were really that necessarily essential to be documented Um, last month I remember a couple months ago Ben Omar at Bear Manor Media was at the house and we remember we were pulling out a box of stuff and I'm like you know I give this to somebody and there's 80% of the research material and I can tell them where they can find the rest from their own home on a computer they don't even need to travel I did the legwork Mm. if they wanted to do a book on the subject and he goes let me check with some of my authors so it's not even me Doing it, it's just a matter of getting the material out yeah. there because I, I 40 years from now I could still be doing research on this stuff, but 40 <laughs> years from now, who's going to care?
0: <laughs> now, the stuff that you're talking about is more like. Uh Comedy shows and things like that? Is that your view? Yeah,
1: Phil Harrison, Alice Faye, The Life of Riley, and so on. I like good dramas, but I like the ones that, to me, the Horatio Alger of the children's day and age, where you had Jack Armstrong, the All American Boy, the Lone Ranger, Renfrew of the Mounted, Green Hornet, Shadow. It's basically the crime fighters of the back then that kids would uh, uh, equate to as uh, juveniles and I always I guess that's kind of my forte even though it's more eclectic because even children's books i like to collect from the time period are basically the ones that kids would be reading about the blood and thunder
2: the precursors to johnny quest and i love johnny quest so i guess that's kind
1: of what would it be like if you were my pill would be what would it be like if you were a little boy in the 1930s and you were listening to these great adventures of dick tracy and you know that kind of thing
0: yeah so uh, i will say this and it's similar to what i said to wesley hyatt uh tv historian um he did a book on uh, the carol burnett show and he did a book on uh bob hope tv specials and it's it's the same for a number of your books it's like carol burnett show was a book i wish i had done but he did it so i'm happy and he did it well and you have a few in your um bibliography are that way and i'll mention them as we go along uh The uh, Bob Hope book was a book I never would have done, but I'm glad he did it. And a lot of yours kind of fall into that latter category, which is, you know, like Duffy's Tavern. It's like it's a book I would never even think of ever doing, but I'm glad it was done, you know, because, you know, you did it well. You you know, it's very thorough, things like that. So, you know... Mm -hmm. I, that's what I look at for a well-researched book. It might be a subject I have no interest in ever researching myself. But, hey, here it is, and this person did it well, and it's done. <laughs> you know, so I can use that if I need to look things up. You know, so... <laughs>
1: Yeah, my rule of thumb generally is I get the only criticism I get is that there's more information they need, but that's to me a good review. <laughs> but you'd be amazed at how many people would turn around and go, "Do we really need the music cues for such and such?" <laughs> and I guess what they're saying without using the very words because some people have voiced it. Personally, but not thankfully publicly in print <laughs> in reviews, is that they think the books could be short, small, thinner in size and they can save five or ten bucks. Yeah. And uh, I guess that could be, and I can see that, but my rule of thumb is it should be the one book you pull off the shelf, and no matter what your question is, it should be in there. And if not, no one knows the answer to it. It's that comprehensive, and you don't have to go out and buy fifteen books on the same subject.
0: Right. And that's how I see it on my books, too. I mean, some people talk about. what is called the minutiae of everything and it's like how deep do you go you know and it's like uh you you've, you know Stu Showstack of Stu's show he, you know he calls these bricks or, or door stops and things like that I do too but I mean it should be the definitive book there shouldn't be 12 books on Duffy's Tavern there should be one good one I mean if somebody wants to write one about uh, the actors or you know something in a different angle sure you know there's room for more books but you know the definitive just like descriptive book should be like yours as the encyclopedic version as it were
1: Right. And I know, it's to me, it's also filling in the gaps. I don't know how many people are going to sit down, for example, for, this say, this Lone Ranger book or the, what I did for The Shadow and Green Hornet and read seven, eight, nine hundred plots for episodes where recordings do not exist. Mm-hmm. But I know some people have. But the majority of the readers, buyers, probably never have time to read them. But some of them would be like me. They sit down, they read the history end, which is the first half of the book from beginning to end, and they go, wow, now I know all about. I didn't know that the cash change was because of this lawsuit, I didn't know this and then, you know, the second half being the episode guides eh, if it's that important, it was described in the plot summary. it was in the history end and Mm -hmm. voila, I'll give you a fun one and your listeners will get something nobody knows about Um, around 30, September or August 38, the uh, Tonto on the Lone Ranger radio program replaced his horse from Whitefeller. He dropped it off to Chief Thundercloud and picked up a new horse called <laughs> Scout. And uh, he kept Scout going forward. And most people know that those early, early recordings, he's referring to his horse as Whitefeller. And the story always was that parents were complaining and saying, my kid shouldn't be out in the front yard out shouting the word Whitefeller. And like, I always kept thinking, that's kind of a... Re- historical reversed hindsight that's more like a not putting it in today's perspective as it was back then that seems a little flimsy
2: right. and
1: it turns out we're going through the archives and we found out there was a reason for the name change but it was not because of the rumor that went around turns out uh, Republic was filming the cliffhanger serial someone sent a letter to Franz Stryker who was the consultant and said by the way we discovered two white horses in contrast doesn't work great on black and white so we're, cha- we're making sure Tonto's horse the paint horse just in case you might want to make that reflect on the radio program and uh, one week later is dropping off Whitefeller and picking up Scout and, <laughs> and apparently also among the paperwork Fran Stryker was telling Strendel, look we got a new horse you can do a contest get kids to send in write-ins I know how you like that to convince sponsors to continue sponsoring so it's like What's your expectation level on this contest? 20,000? We get 60,000 kids writing in. Boom. It's bigger bigger listenership than you think so, and of course they renew it. So nobody ever, but Trendle never got the contest going, and after mm. two weeks, strikers said, screw this. I'm just going to go ahead and make them t- scout, and there's your name, and that's wow. how it's <laughs> done. But most people here always probably heard the rumor, and if they did, well, now they know the truth.
0: Do you have any other examples of that in any of your other books of uh, rumors that turned out to be completely false after you, or generally false once you found out the information?
1: Oh, yeah, I would say probably every fourth or fifth page in any books I've written, when it's on the history section, I'm debunking some myth or misconception or misunderstanding. Um, Like, uh, for example, and these are ones no one knows, so exclusives for you. This is your life. I've got the radio material, and there is a bit of television material, and there's a letter of the WTF letter that comes to... um, Ralph Edwards like what the heck happened anyone who's seen Laurel and Hardy's uh, This Is Your Life there was one for Stan Laurel Mm -hmm. it's live TV and they're not there for the first five or six minutes you know there's something going on supposedly Stan Laurel, he's drunk, he's drinking across the street at the bar, he does, he found out he ain't doing it, and they had to force him to get on the show. Turns out, no, somebody just locked the door in the back of the studio, and they were banging on the door, and nobody knew about it. (laughs) A friend of mine's at the archive, and he takes a picture and goes, wow, he goes, this rumor that's been imprinted in books, we just debunked it. I said, and nobody knew it was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We come across across a lot of those, and, and that's what I like. I call it, that's the fun part about Writing books and yes. researching as you get to publish your findings. Yes. So,
0: and I have a few of those in my books. So, the, you know, it's always good. It's like, especially like my my next book is about Alvin and the Chipmunks. I have a few things that I found that uh, hasn't been in print anywhere, and I go good. You know, I always like it when I have, like, a little bit of information. I have to hold it close to the vest right now. I mean, if somebody wants to do the research like I did, they'll find it out. But, I mean, it's like, you know, and then when the book comes out, then, yeah, I'll talk about it, because now the book's out. But you know, so.
1: Yeah, and we should clarify for those listening, you and I are referring to research in the term of uh, doing the legwork, is what I always call it. Because yeah. um, I always tell people, you know, it's sad. I can be up on Facebook and I could ask a question and say, hey, anybody know such and such a cassette Et cetera, et cetera, I'm looking for. And 90% of the people will go on Wikipedia or Google and find something. And I go, no, it's not true. I can tell you why. Yeah. I'm looking for someone who's actually gone to the archives to dig it up. And yeah. I always tell people there's a difference when you compare Wikipedia to a book. The difference between a four-page website and a 400-page book. Yeah. And the difference is someone did the legwork, i.e., Research and right. that's where the materials, as you and I know.
0: So. Yes, and then Wikipedia, if they're updated, is usually updated with information from your book. So that's usually what actually, happens.
1: Actually, it's it's amusing. I'll give you a funny story. One day, as <laughs> we're doing finishing researching on the Green Hornet book, we found out Cato never turned Filipino the day after Pearl Harbor, as the story goes, because <laughs> he was uh, Japanese originally, and he was played by a Japanese actor, Raymond Toyo. Turns out, uh, in uh, some we in the summer of 1940. Uh, the Philippines was being invaded, and they decided to change him into a more sympathetic character and made him Filipino.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it turns out we put that on Wikipedia, and then I get an email the next day from someone who's apparently the self-proclaimed oversight of that page, and <laughs> says uh, you know, this is all new, I don't know what this is, stop putting this stuff up and changing. And I said, you know, I remember a friend once told me it's supposed to be self-correcting, but apparently it's not, because the debate isn't what goes up there and who puts it up there, although so yeah, a six year old could put anything up there. Mm-hmm. And the, the statement really comes down to is who has the right to say what is and isn't, who has the oversight. Encyclopedia Britannica at least had people who would oversight yeah. and the amusing part was two years later the book gets published it's out there all of a sudden it's now corrected as it was when I put it on there and they're citing my book as a source and I thought mm-hmm, but I'm the guy who actually sent it first time and it wasn't accepted the moment it goes into a book yeah, now it's accepted Yeah, so it, it's amusing and I tell people <laughs> you don't have to go to print on demand and do your own book you can always do it in a magazine article it'll still be accepted somewhere Yep. just depends on how many people see the article.
0: Right. <laughs> and it's funny that, uh, you know, yeah, they can't do it and trust you as a, an, as a researcher or doing, someone doing the legwork, to use your vernacular. Um, you know, it's like as a solid source, you know. The, it's like it has to be in print. It has to be, and a lot of times it has to be a digital print. It can't even be paper print, you know. It's like, um You know, it's interesting that they just will dismiss it out of hand rather than say, Oh, you might be a credible source. I may actually believe you on this. (laughs) So...
1: Yeah, so it's like any researcher or reader, also if they're not even a researcher, they believe what they read, but you can usually tell when you look at it whether it's actually been researched or whether it hasn't. I think I gave a warning on my blog last month of a book I bought that was supposedly, I think, 60 pages and that was already a first dead tail sign, and the number (laughs) of pages, and it turns out he only writes five pages of history that he puts in the beginning. I have no intention of doing a history like some scholars who often amongst themselves and I'm like where's the heck is he getting that <laughs> and then he goes into an episode guide where he spends most of it putting the plots you would get if you listen to it right. so I gave a warning and said look uh, before you buy anything that's kindle because a monkey with a typewriter can do any 40 50 page book yeah. consider the number of pages consider the cheap price that you are getting what you paid for and yes that includes wikipedia <laughs> and i said and be careful for uh, i said and basically i just made mention until you see a bunch of reviews and don't go by just one review that could be their friend i says ebooks may not be the w- the best solution to something versus a 800 page book that's been published in hardbound so.
0: yeah I've even seen books that are those quickie print-on-demands that literally are Wikipedia entries reprinted, and it's like, you got to be kidding. You know, it's like,
2: uh,
1: Oh, yeah, Amazon has no oversight on that, unless it's brought to their attention, and then they kind of investigate. And they figure if it's really that bad of an issue to be brought, they're, they're a third-party company anyway, so they're not going to be held accountable. They're just going to take it down at worst-case scenario. So.
0: Right, right. Um, moving on on all your books, so you did a lot of a radio books mostly drama like you're saying but i've noticed you touched on various tv shows of course they're kind of in the dramatic end too uh i'll touch on a few of them and we'll just talk about it. so you've done two different books on alfred hitchcock one on his tv show alfred hitchcock presents and I, i haven't seen the other one the alfred hitchcock story is that just a general biography or is there more to it on that one
1: Uh, Oh, Hitchcock Presents, of course, is about the TV show Right Um, The other one, Alfred Hitchcock's story Was actually written by Ken Mogg I contributed a couple, three or four chapters
2: Ah, got it Um, He
1: had different people who knew their subjects I'm like Encyclopaedia Britannica said, "You know about his radio career. You know about the TV career. Just do a write-up that covers all the bases." And of course, you know he—the guy—went to the right people. Ken was a nice guy. He lives in Australia, and basically just went to the right people who said, uh, "Look, you're the smart one. To sit down and make a blueprint on paper, figure out what the bases are, what the basics of the, each of those bases, and then come back to it a week or two later and make sure that it's all covered." And go, "Oh yeah, we need to cover this angle," and then do a quick write-up. So. It's like a coffee table book, full colored, looks lavish and nice. It's, I think, two pages, two page spread for each movie, two page spread for each appropriate angle, such as the paperbacks that bore name, anthologies that bore his name, to the radio shift. So I just contributed to that one. But it's a nice book.
0: Got it. Okay. Now, on the other one, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, I, I have a few of your books, but not this one yet. Um, so maybe you can answer this, and you'll, you know, I'll eventually get a copy of it. Um, what possessed uh, Alfred Hitchcock? To do a TV series at the time he was doing it because it was like it was during it aired during the time he had probably his greatest success in the movie theaters as well, you know, as far as you know, type of movies and everything that everybody seems to remember.
1: Yeah, um, like most people in Hollywood, there's generally one that they consult. Um, Lou Wasserman was in charge of uh, Universal Studios at that time MCA Universal Anything Lou Wasserman told him he did He believed his business savvy He knew everything he suggested to him was in his best interest Wasserman said You need to do a TV show And he said, look, Robert Montgomery Presents is big. All you have to do is host it. It'll Hmm. boost your prestige name. It'll help boost your movies, credentials. He says, we can't cover all your movies somewhere along the line. You want to be like DeMille and keep moving up and have the studios have a tough time saying no when you want to make your budget go up. Hmm. And uh, Hitchcock did, and he made it about as minimal involvement as possible. He would direct... (laughs) Two or three episodes a year at most Um, He chose the stories And they'd be quick summaries And sometimes he'd read them in the magazine that bore his name And he'd tell the producer Who's handling the whole thing uh, Hey I like this story, get the rights, this will be a great episode And uh, he didn't mind it And he just hosted it made good money Mm -hmm. ironically um when he wanted to do psycho it was universal that said no (laughs) so he went to paramount which is why in the beginning you see a paramount logo in the movie and the movie did so much money and i mean so much Mm -hmm. that somewhere along the line somebody at uh, universal said we'd like to have all your movies going forward come through our studio and of course he went to wasserman who quietly off the side even though he worked and was in charge of Universal, said okay, here's what you do. Sell your entire TV show when it ends. Tell them that you can keep producing it, but when it ends, they get it. Sell them that and Psycho for a big flat fee, but make it a percentage of the stock ownership they'll split stock they'll do whatever they do business-wise turns out uh, even about i think 15 years ago when i met patricia hitchcock hitchcock's daughter mm. she confirmed that she was the third largest shareholder of universal studios and never had to work a day in her life wow <laughs> so yeah Hitch- anything lou Wasserman told him to do he did
0: now, who is Lou Wasserman again? I, I, you might have just said,
1: but... I, I he, mean, was the what's pre- his, he was the president of Universal Studios. Okay.
0: I've heard the name before, but I'm not familiar with him as in, a person, necessarily. Um, so you said uh, Hitchcock did... did I, I'm just kind of finding out, and yes, I should just get the book, like, you know, Mark, get the book, yeah. <laughs> um, so... The ones he directed, uh, I'm just curious, were those ones that he originally intended to make movies of and then decided, oh, this would be good for the TV show, or was it completely separate from each other?
1: Uh, no, they were completely separate. Um, he did them originally to set the standard of what he wanted on the program. Okay. Uh, sometimes they were little stories that he absolutely loved. Uh, a couple times it was a matter of a legal issue where a particular writer would threaten he didn't like the way the adaptation was done and going forward, like Ralph Dahl. Mm. He directed most of the ones that were Ralph Dahls just to keep Dahl happy. <laughs> um, one of them I remember, the producer, I think it was Norman Lloyd at the time, that said we got a problem they're supposed to film the episodes in three days you know it's uh, it's standard for a half hour TV production some of them are starting to do four days and Hitchcock finally said I want them all on the set such and such data I'm supposed to direct an episode sat there did the entire direction of the episode which reportedly slept half the time in his chair Hmm. Um, because he figured if everybody knew what they're doing, why should he tell them what to do? It was just basically in the advance he tell them, you know, I just want you to eat a little bit, not a lot, eat like a bird, etc. Minor stuff. Anyway, at the end of the first day, he turns the timing girl. Says it's, uh, it's now five o'clock. What time is it? And she looks at the, the board and goes, "We're done." And he Mm -hmm. turned to all of the director, the handful of directors that were doing the majority of the episodes that season, and said, If I can do an entire episode in one day, you can do it in two.
2: Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. they
1: never went past the three days after that. Wow. (laughs) So sometimes it was out of necessity.
2: Mm.
0: And as time went on, it was on for 10 seasons, is that correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, Was there a reason why it was canceled? Uh, Was it low ratings or just even started doing it? What happened at that point?
1: I think it was a combination he was getting a little tired of it. Um it really the, the last season they knew it was going to be anyway. Um, okay. That's why some of the episodes go a little bit more than what you would expect the censors to allow. They you know it's like when we got to are going off the air at the end okay. of the season. Um sometimes the networks just said look it's coming all these new flashy programs are coming on, you know you got man from uncle and all that stuff and it just there's no competition and the ratings weren't going to stay strong permanently so 10 years was enough and by then he knew he was going to get a nice chunk of change for it anyway so you know what's the point
0: okay because uh since those later seasons are not on dvd as of the moment i'm not sure if i've seen them much less know the continuity behind it or anything like that so
1: They don't work well as hour-longs, most of them. By the second season, there was a few episodes here and there that started fitting well for the hour, but they could have still been done in a thirty-minute time frame. Um, It's like *Twilight Zone*, when *Twilight Zone* went to an hour, very few of the episodes fit that mold. Um, And I think Hitchcock and them, they knew it But, you know, it was just one of those scenarios with the networks Where the network wanted an hour time slot So they could sell sponsorship And a half-hour show just sells half the amount of sponsorship So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it was all business behind the scenes It usually is A lot of people always say the ratings are what dictates the cancellations But in reality, it's the sponsorship But ratings can convince sponsors So, yeah, there's a little bit of influence
0: yeah. <laughs> well, I know as cer- certainly as time went on in television, uh, ratings took a greater emphasis than sponsorship because it wasn't a single sponsor most of the time. So. Um.
1: Oh yeah, look at NBC a few years ago, maybe about a decade ago, I don't follow it. They used to have a show, it was a spinoff of Friends called Joey. Mm-hmm. And I remember after two years it was the lowest rated show on the network and then they renewed it. <laughs> and people were sitting there doing a the double take like what the heck and somebody asked someone at NBC And someone at NBC said, oh, you don't understand. Friends is the number one best-selling and financially profitable in reruns right now in syndication. For Joey to go into syndication and those same channels we predict would want the spinoff, we need to have at least 90 episodes, so we need a third season. Right. So that's when you realize, no, it's about the money. It doesn't matter about the ratings. It could be the highest-rating, best show, or it could be the lowest-rating show, and the renewal option is all based on money.
0: Right. (laughs) And number of episodes, like you said. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Twilight Zone, which was one book I wanted to touch on. Um, I I asked this in person, but we're on a podcast now, so I'll ask you again. Uh, And you touched on it already. A number of Twilight Zone books that are already out, a lot of them are really good. What makes yours different than the uh, other ones that have been published?
1: Um, Well... It wasn't even intended to be done originally. <laughs> we had access to like 60 some banker boxes of Rod Serling's production files from Kayuga Productions. And just being a fanboy, I'm going through there and I'm discovering a lot of mistakes in all the other books going, wow. Mm. You know, and one guy writes a book, and I'm not saying names or any titles, yeah. but a lot of people will go by the info from one book. They find a bunch of new info, so they add to it, so the same mistake could be carried over from book to book. Right. And it just came to a point where I realized you know I know this show by heart I know it I could blindly hear 10 seconds of an episode and tell you which type which episode it is <laughs> um, I just realized you know I think we need to get a book to put it together it's the book to end all books it debunks myths it corrects all the errors um, even Mark Scott decree, who did the Twilight's own companion had a third edition published a few months ago out of the clear blue didn't know about it bought a copy was mind equals blown when I read the introduction and he made a comment and said I was going to do an expanded edition then I came across Martin Graham's book and realized he did the end all book and he said uh, so what I did is I just have little shades in my book in this edition that says I was wrong here's the corrections they came from Martin's book and he said and it's a perfect companion to my companion and I I had to send a thank you letter and so that was completely unexpected thank you Um, but it it was nice for him to do that but even the, what I considered the Bible at the time when I grew up as a kid with the one book he turned to. Right. Even he's acknowledging that it's the book he now turns to. Right. I never would have predicted it back then, but It covers everything. It'll tell you where the microphone is on the screen, how much they paid for permits to have police keep people from walking in the background when they filmed on location, Um, the gas signs on the gas stations, how fictional it was for the hitchhiker, where those props originated, what movies they were created for at MGM. It goes into detail that it gives you a reason to go back and rewatch the episodes, and as you watch it, you go... Oh, it was two separate productions. You can tell the difference now. Okay. (laughs) And it just gives people another perspective. But apparently it won two Best Book of the Year awards that year, um, beat out one by Stephen King, which surprised me. (laughs) Um, It's just one of those books. It's the one book of all of them that I did that I'm very proud of. And there's only a handful that I really am very proud of, accomplishing everything it was supposed to do that I didn't think it would, Mm -hmm. versus some of the earlier efforts. But I guess... As Ray Bradbury said, every artist can look back at his own work and <laughs> see improvement. And *The uh, Twilight Zone* is as good as it gets. At least that book, and I'm very happy with that one. But that's the book that not because I wrote it. It has everything in there that everyone needs and now I find it amusing that every book comes out, biography about Rod Serling, a coffee table book on twilights and with photos. They're literally taking the info from my book. They're acknowledging it, which is nice, but you can tell they're just clearly my book is now the go-to book for it. So that's how definitive it seems to be accepted.
0: Now you just cover the original 59 to 64 series, right? Not the radio show or the uh, later Incarnation of the movie in your book correct correct okay yeah. okay i mean i know that would probably make it a 1200 page tome or something like
1: that yeah it's, a, it's already a cockroach killer it doesn't need any <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: um why do you think uh i mean i already know the answer i'm sure but why why do you think later incarnations of twilight zone don't really compare to what originally happened is it all rod sterling or is there other elements in play
1: Um, I think it's other elements The reality is the first show Like the first season of any TV show Sets the standard for what it should be Mm -hmm. Um, Very rarely does a program get better with age Um, Depends on what they call story editors Sometimes associate producers The quotes for that Um, Serling knew what he wanted He wanted wisdom fiction He wanted stories that did social commentary And then you get these remakes, and you get an occasional hit where you go, that's about as good as the original series. Even the new Outer Limits, I'd say 50% of the episodes from the first two years hit it on perfect. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you could just tell they were struggling for coming up with ideas. But (laughs) for the Twilight Zones, now they're filming a new one, which they started, I think, about two months ago. Um, It's going to be on CBS All Access and I'm sitting back thinking to myself the same statement I said the last time they did a remake and that was I hope they get the feel and understanding of what he was out to accomplish for the stories versus just come up with another horror science fiction story and slap it up and call it Twilight Zone because you know if they're smart and I think now they are they only can do so many episodes budget wise Mm -hmm. so if they're smart they'll learn to throw away three out of every four and cut it down to those 10 or 11 episodes they want to do out of the 40, rather than just come up with the first 10 that sound like cool science fiction stories.
0: Right. Um, What do you think of Serling's later series, The Night Gallery? How'd that compare, in your opinion?
1: Uh, No comparison. So Apples and Oranges, it's an off-the-wall anthology. Okay. Um, different type of opening uh, cute stories sometimes there's not much wisdom fiction most of them um, they're just little grisly stories fun stories uh, macabre endings <laughs> uh, it's more more along the lines of what I would end up doing today if I was a associate producer or story editor for a show I go through a ton of books that you know, there's this one story that left a big imprint great twist ending this would be a great story and that's I guess what Serling did is pretty much just took clever little stories and no matter how long or short the story would take Mm -hmm. you fill out an hour with a couple two or three or four stories and uh, get people some jolly bloodlust and (laughs) that's about what the show was you can tell in the last season it was definitely not his decision to pick the stories with Jack Mm -hmm. uh, with um, uh, what's his name it came in uh, Laird who was the producer, you could tell that the stories were not the kind Sterling would have chosen.
0: Okay, so overall, he wasn't as actively involved in that series as Twilight Zone, correct?
1: Uh, First two years and the pilot movie, he was. He always said for that third season that it was just his name stuck on the opening credits, Hmm. his face plastered on the screen with no choice of story and said, uh, uh, it's horrible that they have to to keep his name and image because if it's not his decision they took it away from him and he pretty much was not happy with it and i guess he wanted to walk away but Mm. he was committed for at least three years
0: got it okay and in your opinion you know before or after are there any shows that come close or even surpass possibly uh the original twilight zone in tone or feel or writing
1: um, not really per se. Trying to capture Twilight Zone, I would say the closest, at least to enjoyment level. Mm-hmm. At least it's a far out show. It would probably be Black Mirror, which mm. is streamed on Facebook. I mean, not Facebook, on Netflix. Um, the first few episodes were done in England, and then Netflix took it over, and I believe. I personally feel when Netflix took it over the stories went up a level Mm. and I'd say like Twilight Zone as Serling described his own show years later one third are okay one third are decent and (laughs) one third are gems Mm. and boy I'd say a third of those black mirrors are gems Mm. and while they have their own that's supposed to be an anthology where it's near future using today's technology, an inch off the side or ten minutes far off the beaten track that how it could be used in the wrong context. And it's sometimes social commentary But overall It's a great show And I've always told people If you want to If you stick with it Because there's an episode or two that's weak Versus Mm -hmm. others You'll be rewarded And I think that today That might be the closest that's come to the flylight Zone Back in the 50s
0: Wow, okay I have barely even heard of that, so I'll have to check it out, because I'm always kind of curious, you know, because they have different series that they've tried over the years, like Amazing Stories, and, you know, even Outer Limits, and, you know, sometimes they get close, but it always seems like they just don't quite understand what made Twilight Zone special, so...
1: Yeah, I've often tried not to compare any anthology with Twilight Zone because, uh, except for the ones called Twilight Zone, yeah. But I always figure you always have the original. So, like anything, when they do a remake, if you don't like it, you still have the original. Yeah. <laughs> I w- I will say there's a cute story to Amazing Stories. I love the show, especially the first season. Second yes. season gets yep. a little weak. Um, Richard Matheson wrote a story for Twilight Zone Called Little Girl Lost Based on one of his published short stories Little girl goes through a wall Finds herself in the fifth dimension Mm In the original TV show One day he gets a phone call According to him from a secretary Working for Spielberg And says uh Mr. Spielberg would like a copy of it if you happen to have it on video because we can't find it this is back in like the early early 80s and he goes yeah I actually recorded it on VHS I'll mail it and he did and a few months later they mailed it back and nothing other than a thank you about a year or two later someone comes up to Richard Matheson and says yeah, notice they did a movie based on your Twilight Zone episode. He goes, what do you mean? They go, oh, this movie called Poltergeist. Your little girl goes into another dimension. <laughs> of course, Matheson goes to the theater, sees it, comes back, writes a scathing letter to Spielberg, to which he gets no response from, of course. Oh. You know, that how dare you, yada, yada, yada. In reality, they pro- I have no doubt they already had the script done. They, someone just, it just dawned on them. Wait a second, it might, there might have been something done prior that's so close we may have to pay the rights. Probably got it, borrowed it, looked at it, and says, no, it's not that close that so we don't have to worry about paying the rights just to cover our butts. And we're just curious through hindsight before they went into production. But anyway, scathing letter, never had a response. About. Year 2, 3 years later, he gets this phone call from the secretary. Mr. Spielberg wants to know if you would be interested in a job. They're doing a TV show called Amazing Stories. We want to know if you'd like to be the story editor. You can use some of your own stories and write the teleplays. And he said the amount of money he made off that was so great. He said he figured it was a scathing letter that got him that job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's probably correct, yeah.
1: (laughs) And the irony is that one of the episodes in Amazing Stories was a teleplay he wrote for Twilight Zone, the final season. And when the new producer came in the middle of the season, he threw away all the ones that were approved by the prior producer, (laughs) called The Doll. Mm -hmm. So he used that one, and of course no Twilight Zone opening and closing narrations. John Lithgow plays the role and he wins an Emmy. Oh, wow. And so it's one of those scenarios where irony is, yeah, mm-hmm, uh, there, there's still those Twilight Zone stories cropping up in other programs that uh, it wasn't Twilight Zone, but it was close enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> now, I know I read this before in other Twilight Zone books, but, you know, I'll just kind of say it just out of curiosity. It's like, was there ever any sort of. Uh, Interest or need or uh, expectation for a sixth season, or was it just fifth season's? It we're done.
1: Yeah, there was an intention of doing a sixth season. It went back and forth. The network said yes, and the network said, well, wait a second. We may not back and forth. It got to a point, Serling's like, you know, I'm, I'm teaching college college courses. Really, guys, you make up your decision. We need to know early enough. Um, if it had gone a sixth season, Serling had it in a letter to somebody. It, by that point, the last season of Twilight Zone was the first season of The Outer Limits, and Serling watched it. And I think Stefano, because he only produced the first year after that, it went to pot. Um, the first season of the original Outer Limits, Stefano fought the networks and took what Twilight Zone did and notched it up one. And I think Sterling was in admiration because he said, We're going to do a lot more two-parters, we're going to do a lot more space aliens, outer space stuff, mm-hmm. uh, bug monster of the week almost. And you yep. can realize he was about to just start changing the format to what it was. Were- what outer limits had accomplished? Because he enjoyed what they—he would admired what they did without using the words outer limits. Yeah. So that's that's what would have happened if he had done it. And I think he was also starting to get into the witchcraft thing at the time. So he might have done a couple of demonic, striking deals with devils and witches and warlocks. Type stories would have started creeping into the Twilight Zone as well if it had gone another year.
0: Was there any consideration of doing it without Rod Sterling, or is he locked stock and barrel with it? So he had to be in- involved.
1: Oh, he had to be involved. He owned 50% of the company. Oh, okay. Um, the network always owned the other 50%. And of course, like a year later, almost a year after it goes off, they bought his 50% interest out. So they own it outright. CBS. Right. Yeah. And, uh, of course, later on, the family realizes there's T-shirts and action figures. But in hindsight, no one predicted that back then. Syndication reruns was the only way you were going to make any additional money on something
0: like that. Yeah, and the fact that they're in black and white, I'm sure the prevailing thought is, "Oh, these won't run because they're in black and white." Even if I Love Lucy is on or something like that. So, <laughs> correct. Um, let's see. What other books do you have here? I'm going down the list here. Um, well, I. I I bought this book, and it it seems, in my opinion, just kind of, you know, it sticks out like a a sore thumb compared to everything else. You did a book on Car 54, Where Are You? What what was the impetus to doing that one? Because I never saw those in reruns. The first time I ever saw that show was on DVD.
1: Oh, yeah. um, I I was doing research on a particular show at at an archive. And I was done a day early, and it was a matter of do I go wander and be a tourist for a day, which I wouldn't mind, <laughs> or do I uh, just stay in the archives, see what else they have, copy it, and that's how stuff stockpiles here. <laughs> and uh, there was a Nat Hiken papers, and I go through the Nat Hiken and stuff, and I see there's a ton of. I think there was when they had the vehicle registration number for the car that was used in Car Fifty Four. Were we'll argue that I went, oh crap, there's everything here, <laughs> so I copied everything and. I had a damn the cloth attitude at the copy machine, so I just literally ran everything off as fast as I could, and eight hours later, boxing up another box and mailing it home. And I think uh, one day I just decided when I looked it over, you know, it's time to sit down and do a And a book on the history of the TV show Because there was no book on the TV show Right That's how I filled in that gap
0: Okay Because, yeah, I mean, you're talking about, you know, mystery And you're talking about uh, drama and things like that And then this one, situation comedy Uh... Ca- television, not radio, you know, and it just kind of is quite different from everything else you've written books about. At least in my opinion, but
1: uh yeah, yeah, it was another. It was another case. There was there was just no book on it, and it wasn't like I was going to whip a book together. There's subjects people have asked me about. You want to do a book on this? And some of them like the Whistler and Lights Out. I hear a zillion times,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the answer is still the same. Well, there's this gap in the history. There's some. There's like a few months of episode guy episodes no one has scripts and we can't find any to fill in the gap and i don't want to do it i do not want to do a half ass job mm-hmm. so uh, what i try to do is you know if, I, if i'll stockpile the info i'll continue piling it up i've always said you spend more time researching than you do typing i consider <laughs> the typing part data entry um <laughs> in fact twilight zone as an as 800 page book uh, the time i decided i was even going to do it before i even went through the Serling papers when i knew what was there to the time it got published what literally physically in hand was 8 months mm-hmm. the proofreaders were literally proofing each chapter as i was finishing each wow. chapter wow. and by the time i got the last chapter done the first chapter had been done by five, had been proofread by seven people mm. and so it was it was so systematic it was amazing how within 8 to 9 months it literally was published from the day I decided to even do a book. So data entry is easy. It's the research.
0: What, what is the tipping point for you? You said the Whistler, there's big gaps. So what type of gap are you experiencing?
1: Um, well, for the Whistler, it's actually the episode guide. There are episodes in, the, in 1942 and that there's no recordings existing. The radio scripts were... Uh, there was from 42 up on eBay at one point but I didn't know about it until the auction already ended mm. and I was like oh bummer because if I had known that I would have gone up and got it tried to track down who had them nobody answered it was mm. kind of like a dead thing yeah. so I was like well there's still this gap and until I can get that I just, I just don't want to do a partial book yeah. And I always believe if you do a half-assed job, someone's going to turn around and be inspired to do a better one. Yeah. And I know a couple people who do that. They whip together books, and they can do decent jobs. And if it's a book that there's no books out there, it's better than nothing. They'll do good sales-wise. But I always fear that one day, and I've heard people... Verbally in front of me, say, Well, his book was nice, but I really feel like doing one of my own because he really didn't do this and this and this. Right. And that's the downside to it. So I prefer to do it right the first time or not at all.
0: Yeah. That's what I call doing your due diligence. You know, it's like, obviously, if you find that there's absolutely no way to get that information, you could just relate that. But in your case, you know, what you just said, you know, you know it exists, you just don't have it yet. So. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I would be like you, you know, wait and see if you can definitely get it. I think you will eventually. You know, somebody will, you know, somewhere along the line you cross paths. Oh, yeah, I was the one who won that auction or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, I didn't know you wanted this. Oh, okay, here, you know, but. <laughs>
2: And it could be.
1: I remember one guy bought, I won't say what show, because just in case he ends up listening one day,
2: because
1: um, he's in the hobby. He bought, I think, all 17 years of a radio show and scripts that were bound volumes, bought it off eBay, mm-hmm. did not know about it till it was too late, and went, wow. So I contacted him and said, dude, I will pay you whatever you paid, just so I can borrow them, and I will send them back. And I said, it won't take long. I'll use a digital camera to snapshot. They'll stay in the bound volumes. I can put them in the PDFs, and once I've got backup, I'll send them back to you. It won't take long. And we're talking. He might have spent about thirty five hundred bucks. So I was giving him a heck of an offer, and yeah. he's also known for being a bit of a. Uh, let's say he's a one French fry short of a happy meal. He yeah. li- he literally was like, no, thank you. Oh, geez. <laughs> and and so a couple years later, I go, you know what? Maybe he might change his mind. Maybe he needs money. He's old. He might need medical bills. So I send him another email, and he goes, no, I sold it to somebody. Don't contact me again. Oh, wow. And I talk to a friend of mine, and they go, he didn't sell it to anybody. It's up on a shelf. I saw it last week. And I was like, <laughs> well, it's his loss, but one day he may need the money. And to be honest, he's been auctioning some stuff off. So somewhere along the line, he may auction off those scripts and at which point I may end up going, okay, let's see what I can do. <laughs> and it's not even the money. I know people say 3500 The reality is it's what you 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 know. You go on Facebook, you do a GoFundMe and say, here's the deal, folks. Donate X number of dollars for to help me get afford this, etc." Basically, you bid and then you find the money. And you say, here's, here's how it is, and then I'll send you a free copy of the book when it's done. But imagine – and people just knowing what that is and how comprehensive they're – and with a track record like I have there. No problem raising a 3500 in advance,
2: mm-hmm. knowing,
1: hey, I've got, I got a couple hundred books already pre-sold. This is good. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, so.
1: <laughs> and, so, and, of course, it's not profit because, you know, it's just, this is just to get these scripts. But there are some people out there who get it. What did they have in the art world? I saw in a documentary. A woman said, there are three types of people in the world. There are some people who get it and see it there are some people who don't see it until
0: you explain it to them and then there are people who just will never get it yep. <laughs> yeah that's about right uh let's see going down the the list here another one and this one i own too is uh the time tunnel book and that one falls into the category i wish i had done that one but you did it so thank you very much <laughs> And uh, well, Car 54 as well. But uh, yeah. how did that one come about? That one's a little bit out of left field in a certain way, only because Time Tunnel is kind of a little bit farcical in a certain way. Not as bad as maybe I, Lost in Space, what's
1: but you know, it's funny. I honestly don't remember what got me into wanting to do that book. <laughs> um, it wasn't like I saw Archive, went, "Oh my goodness, here's a ton of material." Um, I remember the publisher was here at the house, we were finishing some projects, and I said, well, you know what, I know the people who own the rights to the program, why don't we just write a, drop an email, and if they're receptive to the idea of doing a book, and they'll give me access to all the production files, illegal legal files, yada yada, and I don't mind signing off or whatever how about we go out there and we just go copy everything and we'll just put together a book. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, they were very receptive. We went out there. They were getting negatives developed for pictures that had never been seen before, behind-the-scenes production stills, conception artwork, um, right down to how much each actor got paid. And if I remember the the only request they had was not to put down salary fees, Mm. because they figured some people were still alive, they didn't want some people upset, I got it Um, it was supposed to be the first of four books but Mm. then after the first one was done, before I could jump on to the second one, somebody else jumped in, I guess they looked in the book and said, uh, oh, that's where the source is for all this stuff, or they were already planning, but somewhere along the line they went to the same production company and made an offer for two other books they're nowhere like what I did but apparently it's like well that just killed that so it was supposed to be the first of uh, four books but that's the one i love the most so i'm happy that book got done
0: was this the irwin allen estate or something different correct oh, okay okay so the other books would have been lost in space land of the giants and whatever i can uh, voyage to the sea yeah voy-
1: voyage would have been second mm-hmm. land of the giants third and uh lost in space the last because being the most popular is lost in space of the four programs i figured without even having to tell people there was going to be a fourth by the third one everyone had already even the lost in space fanatics would have at least seen the other one of the others had Mm -hmm. seen the detail level and went oh i'm so looking forward to that one so you kind of build it up by popularity um and it was actually cool If you know the cover is blue It's a black and white image with blue Right um, Voyage was going to be green uh, Land of the Giants was going to be red And Lost in Space was going to be yellow Oh, cool We had uh, cover art and everything It was so cool
0: Well, are, are there books about Land of the Giants And Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea? I don't even know about them
1: as um, far as I know, land was contracted If it's not already done the okay. voyage did come out As far as I know, I never bothered Because uh, with so many projects I figured, eh, well, if okay. I see it, whatever Yeah, so, But as far as I know, it's been done
2: Okay
0: because I, i'll have the research on that one because i'd buy books on those especially if you did them but um in lost in space there is a book out there but it's like uh so many others it's like it's vastly inferior to what i would like to see you know that would be a book i would want to see all the minutiae and stuff that people complain about <laughs> so you know yeah,
2: i call
1: i refer to that as those books that are what called recycled material yeah. Um, it's what it's what I always joke it's cut and paste with grammatical cosmetics, yeah, it's the same thing. reprinted from one book to another with very little additional info it's, like I said, until you see a book that comes out and there's 10 or 20 reviews and almost all of them are rave and they're going into detail as to, wow, this book goes into the salary cost, it dates a production. That's when you start going, you know, I think this is the book I've been waiting for someone to do.
0: And I'm still looking for that. Like, not to name names again, because we're being careful on that, and I don't do that, but uh, the type of uh, book I don't like too much is how the Lost in Space book I'm referring to is like, they have pages and pages of trivia quiz questions and that to me it's like how about more information i don't need trivia quiz questions like uh who is turned into a carrot in you know <laughs> you know, whatever you know what i mean uh oh,
1: yeah those are those are more fanzines that are thicker
0: and yeah well. and it's like that just boggles my mind it's like you have this opportunity to write a book and you're just filling it with what i consider garbage you know it's like uh at least have more photos of, you know, paraphernalia and stuff like that, or if you don't have anything else to talk about in the book. but. You know, in yeah, the
1: I remember I remember there was a book one Alfred Hitchcock presents before mine and it wasn't bad but it would be like Robert Altman was also the director of the movie MASH which won an Academy Award and that was the only trivia under the episode entry and I was like <laughs> you know as some of these actors are still around they probably have memories and recollections but most of them thought they were going to be directed by Hitchcock and were disappointed so you could actually bring that up and they'd probably tell you a story and right. I want to know whose pants tore on the set and wasted to 20 minutes film, not filming. I want to know who who got injured and they had to film the, only from the right side of the face because he got into a bar brawl the night before and ruined the left side of his face. Those are the things I want to know the behind the scenes. And right. So
2: exactly. that, that's
1: where you can tell if someone did their research or not.
0: Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> now, uh, you've, how many books have you written? About 30? <laughs> Uh, about 30 i okay. think that's the number i i don't remember
1: until i hit some milestone number and i think 30 was just recently and i went
0: "Wow, well, okay. i have done 30 yeah i'm at 10 so but i have four in the works so <laughs> but anyway i'm i also started 10 years later than you did so <laughs> anyway but uh i saw your panel on renfrew the mounties and sergeant preston uh is that going to be a, an eventual book or uh, you just did for, that for renfrew, presentation well okay yeah
2: renfrew
1: renfrew will um it's it's the one I think I emphasized many times in the presentation. They speak up to the audience, not down to them. Not that Sergeant Preston was speaking down the kids, but um, that was more cookie cutter format. Renfrew was in a fantastic read; very enjoyable. Um, found the attorney, his agents, uh, the creator's agents' collection, went through all of that and so on, and I've got probably 95, 98% of the material. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I finished The Lone Ranger this winter, that's the other one, the other right. big one that I'm going to sit down and go through the scripts as fast as I can, put them all into the data entry. The history is almost done already. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I have to go up to this private boys' school that the creator of Renfrew created. They have material about him and I figured they'll help me put in more dates of accuracy. They probably have yearbooks. One of the books, for example, was um, dedicated to a bunch of his students. He said he rode with them through the plains of Utah and Arizona. And I thought, huh. So I did some search and it turns out I thought I tracked down one of the students, turned out to be his son. And he said, yeah, I might have a photo of my dad with Erskine, who created the show. <laughs> um, I don't know when exactly they would have rode the planes, but that's a, based on that, it seems like they did more than just go off to Europe one summer. And so uh, we're kind of digging a little bit more info. But the amusing part is, as I read through a different novel of Renfrew, there's one where he takes a bunch of kids on a tour, like uh, like a cabiner like uh, Exploration of the Canadian Wilds, and basically they took a bunch of short stories of different Mounties, and Renfrew is never the central character or hero, he's just the narrator for all these different stories, (laughs) and he bridged them all, every two or three chapters is a story, and he bridged them, open and closings, with taking the kids on tour, exploration, they stop at a campsite, they camp for lunch, he tells them a story they break down you get the idea but the kids names in that novel are the same kids names that's in the one that's dedicated that different novel that's dedicated and I realized he named some of the kids at his students after them.
2: Mm. so I'm
1: putting one and one together here and there yeah, it'll be a nice book but most people don't know who Renfrew is yeah. on the plus side it will But the other plus side is I preserved and documented everything. Because at this point, he's going to write a Renfrew book. So this will be everything about Renfrew Preserved.
0: (laughs) I still think that's a funny name. But
1: anyway, um, so Renfrew,
0: Lone Ranger, what other books do you have planned or or if you have planned at this time?
1: Uh, I've got Mysterious Traveler, which is a radio show. I've got almost all the scripts. That's going to be probably Late winter Maybe early spring If I can finish it The goal is This winter To finish a whole bunch Of book projects And then <laughs> relax um, I did finish Way Out Which was a TV show Where Al Dahl Hosted for 14 weeks Aired right before Twilight Zone Most people are familiar With it The fans fanboys Who like old hard TV shows um, Very few people Know anything about it mm-hmm. And we dug into some We did some digging My co-author and I um, unearthed a ton of material how much each actor got paid we found the production files uh, we discovered that Raul Dahl agreed to host the show only because he needed the money to pay off medical bills because his little boy was in an accident and literally for was in a coma for a few weeks it was that bad of an accident uh-huh. Um, And on the Lark, we did the usual stuff that I like being the geek at. (laughs) Um, At one point, we see there's a writer who wrote one of the episodes. And these were most of these original stories. And I take a look on IMDb, shame on me. And Mm -hmm. he's only credited for writing two episodes, one of that and Mm -hmm. another show from the same production company, three weeks later. Mm. And I think to myself huh that's it there's no biography so i take a its name is nicholas Pryor. so i go to i am back on the back screen on imdb there's a nicholas Pryor actor who was acting during the 40s 50s 60s on tv as a character actor background type character and i'm looking at it going i wonder if that's the same person and imdb just hasn't listed two separate ways (laughs) so on a lark i take a look we discovered there's 13 of them across the country i write 13 letters and I get one from North Carolina Says I'm using my daughter's email You found me I am the same person who act and wrote those two wow. My only writing credits I got a great story behind the scenes Give me a call He gave me his phone number And I went You know this is the fun stuff I'm just trying to track somebody down And send 13 letters out on a lark And <laughs> you never know what you'll get So we kind of put together a nice history Of the 14 episodes And they'll be out in June um, But my friend and my co-authors got it now I did my part handed him the manuscript and said your turn
0: (laughs) wow um then you do other projects too besides books uh you have uh the mid-atlantic uh what is that show
2: called Uh, nostalgia
1: convention yes um mid-atlantic nostalgia convention is a three-day convention it's uh it's grown into a monster Uh, (laughs) thousands of people now show up it's just like a any nostalgia type event, you got slideshow panels every hour on the hour for three days. Um, we have a movie room screening old rare films. Sometimes we get them from the BFI or Library of Congress that you can't see elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we have celebrities signing autographs, introducing movies, doing Q and A's on stage. Um, you were at Spurdevac. Imagine Spurdevac, but imagine four thousand people in two floors of a hotel. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, our, our role of thumb has always been: if people have to travel, even from out of country, and we get people from Belgium, Finland, Canada, England, Australia, we always believe that it has to be worth their travel, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's worth it, it's big, it's become a it's kind of, someone referred to it as a destination convention of the year,
2: yep.
1: but the plus side is it, it's done very well, you know, you got vendors, I think there's 190 tables of vendor material mm-hmm. that vendors are selling, so it's it's really like Disneyland if you like old pop culture nostalgia you know from Terry Toons like Mighty Mouse to uh, B-Mystery Western B-Movie you know Film Noir from England I mean it's a little bit of everything
0: now, when you started it, did you intend for it to grow so big, or did you hope that it would grow that big?
1: Oh, yeah. I always said, uh, I had to follow the old business adage, where do you want to be five years from now, and you shoot for that.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so... The,
1: the, the end result was, like most people who start a show, or any new convention, you get disillusioned after the first year, because you think you're going to have like thousands of people, and you get 250, mm. <laughs> but then even people who set up there you know, as vendors, most of them, are, or attendees, will come up and go, you know, you didn't do bad for your first one, good job, keep it going. Yeah. and then the next year you get 400 and the next year you've got 700 and the, it progresses and then our 13th year was in September and we had a, about hair over 4,000 people and the Baltimore police was even there temporarily to keep the people at bay because you get that many people and that long autograph lines and newbies didn't expect to stand in line for an hour and a half waiting to get an autograph mm. they forget to put on their big boy pants and you're mm. going to have the police are just standing there to make sure that they behave so a good kind of problems to have but at this point i don't want to say where i'd say we are probably the third largest convention if you count Dragon Con and Chiller as anything nostalgic.
2: <laughs> if not,
1: then we are the largest nostalgic convention on the East Coast and probably in the country
0: yeah, Chiller's, at this point. Chiller is rather unique I've heard. <laughs> I have not been to either yours or theirs, but I think I'd prefer to go to yours at least for an initial East Coast convention. But... Uh...
1: It's it's ours is worth it. I've been a chiller. It's I don't want to knock them because I run my own, but it is an autograph venue. Yeah, they're the same way. You got to spend an hour and a half, two hours, three hours for autographs. Hmm. Um, they have vendors, but they don't have slideshow seminars. They don't yeah. have movies. Your program guide is a piece of paper, xeroxed and folded in half. Uh-huh. Ours is a forty-four page full color magazine of sorts with articles and stuff. Um, we kind of make. We basically always said, well, how can we take it up a notch versus everywhere else. So that it's always, if someone comes for the first time, and I hear it a lot, it's always, you know, my Bill and I came this year for one day. We decided next year we're going to be there for the whole weekend. Yeah. So that, to me, is a compliment that they are enjoying the show.
0: Yeah. For me, I like a good dealer's floor, but I also like panels. And uh, if it's just autographs, I like there is the Hollywood autograph show. Uh, Not to knock it too much, um, but the Hollywood autograph show sounds a lot like Chiller. Yeah, you have the celebrities there, but they won't even really talk to you unless you suddenly pull out cash, you know. And it's like, it's kind of frustrating that way. It'd be nice to get to see, you know, like they'll have a reunion of certain celebrities, but they'll only do it for photo ops. They won't stand on the stage together and talk a little bit about the show or whatever it is. And so that's where I get frustrated. If you have more things like that, more panels and discussions that's that sells me to go to a convention so
1: yeah and to me personally and most people it's surprising i did polls and it's actually the least of the interests of people but mm. i find slideshow seminars to be the best mm. of the whole um, because you know i want to learn something i want to know about yeah gypsy Rose No, that's good too that's
0: that's that's so what on. i mean you know it's like i'm talking about shows that have absolutely nothing other than the autographs and then you're like okay you know it's like you know i want to, wanna lear- though, to I me wanna me learn i want to learn
1: something go for one day one afternoon yeah and
0: you're done. i want to learn something and it will get me to stay more than one day and something like that so when, when is the next one coming up for your mid like uh nostalgia show uh
1: the next one is, it's always in the middle of september it's north of baltimore so you don't have to go in the city um it's i believe the next one's september 12 13 14 for 2019 i will say this if you plan to get a hotel at the hotel a uh, hotel room at the hotel where the convention is held. They have 430 sleeping rooms and they are sold out by February or March.
0: Okay, that was my next question. It's like, how early should one prepare for something like this? It sounds pretty Yeah, vague, there's, so. there's
1: neighboring hotels and motels. It's not a bad thing, but if you're flying and you don't have a vehicle to move, yeah, that becomes the problem. And we hear the complaints, but that's the logistic part. That that's not our re- resolution, our job. Our, that's not our problem. We're, our job is to coordinate and make sure that slideshow seminars end on time, that they start on time, right. um, that the guy's uh, slideshow, you know, what he has on PowerPoint comes up on the screen proper, that the audio is, you know, we're always working out the operational aspects. So so basically, but it's, a, it's a good thing.
0: So basically for one to go, you should prepare at least six months out for the next year.
1: Um, it does. You can still do it before. Like I said, it's just a matter of the logistics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for 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 me, I always tell people if you if it's your first time and you've never been there call me and i'll give free admission to the first year i've done that probably a couple hundred times now but the one thing i've always noticed i can't think of a person who didn't come back the year after paying their own way it's my way of hey get them through the door but they realize wow yeah and they come every year after so (laughs)
2: Um,
1: if anyone's the first time especially if they're traveling from out of state um, I always, uh, just give me a call on the phone or drop me an email Tell me it's their first time I'll take care of it
0: that's the old drug illusion again <laughs> first ones are free <laughs> (laughs)
1: Uh, yeah but you know what even if they only intend to come once they'll have so much fun they'll tell their friends
0: yes yeah so it's worth it. good marketing ploy um i guess that's everything uh you know i went through kind of everything you've ever written about is there anything else you'd like to discuss or plug or websites to plug or emails or anything else
1: yeah, I'll plug my website. It has a bunch of my book samples on there. They can check out. Makes good Christmas gifts, so they don't have to pay for them, but someone else pay for
2: them.
1: <laughs> um, so it saves them money. And you know, hey, honey, sweetie pie, I'd like to have this for Christmas. It's the equivalent of the wife leaving the uh, um, what do you call it? That little uh, toy catalog or something on the on the coffee table in those corner creased pointing to an item and you know what that's meant to do and it's not a cooking instrument and uh, what it is you know they can go through and sample the books they can see all the subjects they can even read articles that are from the books of sorts excerpts so even if they're not going to buy any books they can read some cool info Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: I have one benefit I have an appearances page on my website Mm -hmm. Um, it's not just a list of appearances of web conventions I go to there's a few it says will not be able to appear this year or not confirmed yet Generally it means I'm not going But I list that as a courtesy So it's almost a list of all these Western cowboy film festivals The East Coast equivalents of a Turner Classic movie Silent film festival It's basically a list of conventions That people can go Hey this one's near me I can go check that out in the month of May So there's a lot on the website I give away For free that it's worth it If they want to pursue more than just Reading a book and watching an old black and white movie On TV tonight
0: Very cool What's the website One more time I'm sorry
1: The website is www.martingrams.com That's my weight That's my name Grams is in the weight G-R-A-M-S So it's martingrams.com They can do a Google too But they'll find it And uh, I hope they enjoy All the stuff That you get to see And read And so on And send feedback too I'd have no problem Listening and reading
0: all right sounds very good um looking forward to any future projects i will try to make it to one of your conventions at some point Uh, all
2: right
0: you'll get a kick out of it all right and uh thank you very much for being my guest today no it was enjoyable a pleasure all right i will talk to you soon Mm -hmm. see you bye thank you for listening and thank you again martin grams for being my special guest Episode number 15 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. You can also become a Patreon of Fun Ideas Production. And if everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, that would be a tremendous help. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2018 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much and have a good night.